Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Ontario Society of Occupational Therapists Leadership in Motion podcast, where we take a deep dive into emerging and established leaders in occupational therapy to learn how they develop their leadership skills and to share some interesting experiences throughout their career. My name is Victoria Denese, the Communications Project Lead at OSOT, and joining me as my co-host is Marnie Lofsky, OSOT's Manager of Professional Practice. Our guest today is Laura Hayos. Laura is a registered occupational therapist who recently moved into the role of project manager at the Center for Faculty Development at the University of Toronto. She has eight years of experience working in healthcare in clinical, education, and management roles in northern communities as well as urban hospitals. Laura's career has been focused in mental health and addictions, simulation-based education, and more recently faculty development. She holds a status-only lecturer appointment with the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto and is the Ontario Society of Occupational Therapists Board of Directors Treasurer. We had an insightful conversation with Laura about the diverse roles she's had throughout her career, her transition from a clinical to non-clinical role, and stay tuned to hear Laura's strategy on how to reach out and learn from leaders she admires. Thanks for speaking with us today, Laura. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to start with the basics. What interested you in occupational therapy? Um, that's a really great question. I actually didn't know too much about occupational therapy when uh, I was thinking about what I wanted to do after my undergrad. And it was uh, a career counselor and one of my best friends from undergrad who actually kind of led me in the direction of it. And um, I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare, but I was originally interested in medicine and I was starting to get the feeling that medicine wasn't quite the right fit for me because I wanted more than a role where I was sort of involved in diagnosing and and really focused on sort of more pharmacological interventions. And um, as I was sort of chatting with this career counselor and and chatting to a friend of mine who actually had applied to physio and OT, and OT was sort of her backup, and ended up getting into occupational therapy uh, and falling in love with the program and was like, thought it was the best thing in the world that she didn't get into physio because she never would have experienced that. Um, I kind of learned more about kind of the holistic um, sort of approach to occupational therapy and, and that really I think is what uh, what drew me towards it. And you've also had experience working as an OT in Nunavut, is that correct? Yes. Can you share a little bit more about that experience and what you learned throughout the way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my partner at the time uh, was given a really great job uh, opportunity to go up there, so we made the decision to go. And um, unfortunately, uh, most of the occupational therapy positions that were up there uh, were based out of the Iqaluit, um, and they were more focused on community um, supports, which was fine and a skill set that I had, but I had um, previously been working at CAMH in mental health uh, and in, in Sulukat in mental health and was really passionate about it and wanted to continue that work. And Unfortunately, there had never been any occupational therapist who had worked in mental health before. And so I had to advocate that occupational therapists could work in the role of what the job title at the time was mental health consultant. And so that was really good learning for me, just even in terms of how to advocate for myself as a clinician in that practice area. So, you know, I pulled resources from OSOT, from CAOT, um, from uh, the AOTA as well, and sort of demonstrating sort of more formalized documentation that the role exists, that we do have the skill set. And so I think I learned a lot just from my experience going up there. And again, as I said, advocating uh, for the skill set that OTs have uh, in mental health. And then when I was given the opportunity to take the job as mental health uh, consultant, there was a lot more education that continued uh, when I worked in. I worked in a small health center. It was myself and a nurse who were kind of the mental health team. And then the remainder of the nurses uh, dealt with more of the kind of uh, physical health care needs uh, of the members of the community. 
What's really different about the model up there than the model I experienced both in Sioux Lookout and in Toronto at uh, CAMH, the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, is that there were no psychiatrists. And so the level of uh, responsibility and autonomy in some ways that I had was very different um, than working in Southern Ontario, uh, even in Northern Ontario. And so I think um, as an occupational therapist, it really, um, it stretched me to use the full scope of my practice um, and to really trust my decision making um, uh, as a clinician. I think it helped me to build my confidence a lot, even though in the process of doing that, I think I had a real lack of confidence in the start of the role. And it was just through the experience that I had um, that finally I built a little bit more confidence by the end of my time there. As a fairly new grad at that time, what do you think served you the best in terms of advocating for the profession, exploring new horizons and expanding beyond sort of the traditional scopes? I think um, what helped is that I had already had a few years of experience working in mental health, so it wasn't sort of a brand new grad going into a brand new practice area. I think the other thing that helped me as well was that I had already worked in uh, Northern Ontario, so I'd already worked with um, the Indigenous population, and so had a little bit uh, better understanding than maybe I did just from my previous life experience of um, different cultural adaptations to practice. And so I think both of those things uh, helped me in being able to communicate the um, skills that I had for the role. But I think it was also just utilizing resources that were around me. Um, so again, as I mentioned, I utilized some resources from CAOT and OSOT to advocate for myself. So I think where I may not have had the language um, myself to kind of um, drive that or necessarily that, you know, not being known to the manager I was applying to, I think the weight of, um, you know, having some associations kind of behind you and supporting the work that you're doing is also um, helpful for advocacy. And when you came back from Nunavut, did this experience change your approach to clinically and through your leadership kind of experience and your leadership approach? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was forced to learn a lot more, a lot faster in my role in Nunavut. So I think that I came back uh, with a, a different skill set. Um, absolutely. Also, just because I think we take for granted, especially in Southern Ontario, the number of resources that we have available. I think, you know, it's funny because we're often say we don't have enough resources for our clients. There's, you know, wait lists for this, that and the other. But I think you forget or don't realize how resource rich you are until you go to a community that's uh, very remote. Um, you know, Nunavut's a fly-in uh, territory, so um, the access to resources are quite different, especially when you're outside of Iqaluit, which I was. I was in a community called Pengnertang. So I think what it did is help me to be a bit more creative with how I utilized resources when I came back to Toronto and also changed my expectations about um, how to utilize resources and, and um, what actually is kind of possible, I think, in supporting our clients. And I think from a leadership perspective, as I mentioned, I think the big thing for me was just confidence and independence in my own decision making. I think it's important to um, lean on your team members and utilize the expertise and support of team members. But I think I know for myself and probably some other occupational therapists have this experience as well. It's sort of ingrained, unfortunately, in the sort of society of healthcare is we always sort of defer to the psychiatrist and assume that they know better or they know more. And so we don't trust our own judgment or our own opinions and then kind of rely on other people. And I didn't really have that opportunity. We had this incredible psychiatrist, I don't know how she did it, who would call us on the phone, 10 communities, once a week for like an hour and we would have phone conversations to consult about our clients. But that was sort of the extent of the psychiatry support we had. So I learned to just be more confident in 
the skills and abilities that uh, I had as an OT and what we have to offer as OTs, I think. Very interesting experience and kind of like your journey as a whole is very vast and diverse. So. Yeah, I think it's funny if you look at my resume, I've worked in a yeah. lot of different jobs and in several different places in, uh, I guess I've been only been working for eight years, but I think I've just been someone who, uh, when something piques my interest, I kind of want to run with it and see what's there. And I feel like early in your career, it's an opportunity to really just explore what you really love. And, and I think each of the experience that I've had in different roles has really uh, impacted the next position that I've been in and only helped to build my skill set. Do you find that um, your experiences, because you've had so many diverse experiences, sort of appeared and you took them or did you create some of those opportunities for yourself? So I think it's a combination of both, um, but to be honest, I think a lot of um, the opportunities that I've had have come from the relationships that I've built. So one of the things I think that I've always um, done a good job of is when there's an opportunity to connect with somebody, I have asked to connect with them and learn more about their career path or um, you know their work their working life or um, you know advice they have for me. So. Um, in, you know, when I was in my very first job, I joined uh, the mental health committee for OSOT. Even though I was working in acute care, I knew I had an interest in mental health. So I joined that committee, which built a network for me of people who were all over Ontario, some of which were in Toronto, which is where I was from. And I was working in Northern Ontario at the time, and that helped me get connected back to a job at CAMH uh, in Toronto. And, um, you know, through my time in Toronto, I saw that there were occupational therapists who were working in leadership roles that I was interested in and wanted to know more about their career path uh, to getting there. And so I, you know, I took advantage of opportunities to connect with those people, learn about their career paths. And then in turn, I think, you know, when opportunities have arisen that they know might have been of interest uh, to me, then, you know, they kind of shared those opportunities uh, with me. So I think people sometimes underestimate relationship building. And I don't mean it in the form of networking because it's who you know that's going to get you the job. But it's just genuinely, I think, connecting with people who have similar passions that you do and similar interests and may have experience that can help guide you um, towards uh, really great opportunities. OSOP put out another podcast series, New OTs on the Block, and in that they talked about some of the techniques to use potentially for making those connections and how valuable making those connections are. Can you give some examples on what types of things you did to, uh, to establish those relationships? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, as I mentioned, uh, the very first thing I did out of school was join the OSOP Mental Health Committee because I knew that mental health was the area of practice I ultimately wanted to end up in. And that was a place that I built a lot of really great uh, relationships, uh, many of whom uh, I'm still connected to today. Another example uh, of that, I would say, was um, getting involved with U of T. So I, uh, through CAMH, did some teaching at U of T and, and uh, did some labs, and that helped me to get connected to some of the profs there. And I sat on the curriculum committee at U of T for a short period of time, which again connected me with other occupational therapists. And then it's also, I think, being open about 
what your interests are and what your career goals are. So when I was working in education at CAMH, my manager and director at the time were not clinicians, but they were, um, you know, in leadership positions that they were connected to senior leaders around uh, the Toronto area. And so when I was talking to one of my directors about sometimes feeling like I didn't see occupational therapists and leadership positions that I was interested in, um, and I was struggling to kind of find my footing about where I may want to go, you know, next, my director connected me to an occupational therapist who wasn't in a clinical sort of big L leadership role, but was in more of an education leadership role. And that was one of the most fantastic conversations that I had because it connected me to someone who I've continued to connect with ongoing. And seeing an occupational therapist working in an uh, interprofessional education leadership role was hugely, I think, important for me in seeing what other roles were out there that may be connected with the kind of work I wanted to do and, and where I wanted to go. So I guess in summary, it's, you know, join committees, um, at, you know, share what your interests are. Don't be afraid to talk to your leaders, even if it's about a role that's not that you're in right now, but something you want to do in the future. Let them know about what your goals are, because a lot of times they can connect you to people who might be able to, um, you know, help you figure out a little bit of what your path is. I'd like to hear your insight about leadership as a whole in occupational therapy. Uh, if you could imagine the perfect leader in occupational therapy, so the best leader possible, what qualities would they have? That's a difficult uh, question to answer, and I think I'll just preface my response by saying that a huge, huge um, piece of learning that I've had for myself over the last six months is that leadership doesn't have to be the big L leadership. It doesn't have to be that you're in a manager role, a director role. You can do so much being, you know, in a more kind of direct service role. And so I think regardless of what role you're in, I think a huge piece of leadership is around really just empowering the people that you're working with, whether you're supervising them or collaborating uh, with them or kind of working, you know, uh, in a direct service role as, as colleagues, is just to empower, uh, I think, other people. I think a lot of the opportunities that I've had to develop skills have been because my leaders have given me opportunities to try new things, to be, again, a part of, you know, committees, whether it's at the hospital that I'm at to learn new things or to connect me to other people. I think another really important piece is to speak up. I think that a huge opportunity for leadership as occupational therapists working in direct services as part of interprofessional teams is, um, you know, you can be a leader by advocating for a client. I think um, that's a role I often took on because in some of the places that I have worked, there haven't historically been, you know, occupational therapists. So people didn't necessarily understand that role. And so as soon as somebody's blood work was, you know, fine or, you know, a bone was healed, you know, there was a sense that they were ready to leave the hospital. And so I think that leadership for um, client care and leadership for the profession is speaking up at those sort of team meetings and uh, advocating for other aspects of somebody's health and well-being that are important. I think you make a really good point that leadership can't even be at a clinical level, that you can demonstrate some of the leadership qualities even when you're doing direct client care. And I think lots of people forget that type of leadership and jump right to the heads of organizations and departments and managers, directors. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's why we're doing this podcast, is to really spread the news as to what leadership qualities you can actually demonstrate in your day-to-day -day clinical uh, roles as well. And I think that it's it's so interesting because I think one of the challenges is that our society kind of 
sends this messaging that, you know, success is climbing this ladder, even in healthcare, it, you know, it can be that way as well. And so I think that's why we kind of equate leadership with, again, the sort of big L leadership is being in a manager, director, you know, VP type role. Um, and I think that's really stifling in a lot of ways because people sometimes feel like they can't have a voice or don't have a voice if they're not in those roles. And I think that's why I said earlier that if you are in those roles, one of the most important things I think is to give your direct service staff an opportunity to be at the table and allow them to be heard. One of the most fortunate experiences I've had in all of the jobs I've had is that the managers or directors I've had have really kind of squashed that hierarchy. There's such a sort of collaborative decision-making sort of model in the leadership styles that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. And I think that has given me the confidence to have my voice because other people have allowed me the space uh, to do that where I may have otherwise not felt that I could, you know, being uh, not in those sort of formal, uh, formal roles. And I think it's important for people to remember that they can still lead in their sort of direct service roles because the risk is we lose all these amazing clinicians because they feel like they have to move on into something else. You can't just sort of quote quote unquote, just be in a clinical role for 30 years of practice. So I actually recently had a colleague who's not an occupational therapist, but he worked sort of um, direct service for most of his career. And, you know, at his retirement party, he said that he had a mentor who told him sort of early on that he didn't need to move into a management role, for example, in order to make a change and to kind of lead the way. And he transformed a training program essentially that we rolled out across the organization not from being in a vp role or anything but from being on the ground delivering training every day to clinicians and i think it was just a really nice example of if someone like him had been sort of told that you need to move on into these other roles we would have lost someone who is really amazing and impacted such change just because i guess the idea of leadership so often in our sort of society is just that it's these corner office roles, uh, which is not always the case. And it's often about the title that comes along with it. So the title doesn't always uh, indicate the level of leadership. You can have some amazing leaders, not with the titles, and some people with the titles who maybe need to not be at the leadership level. Ab absolutely, absolutely. I think that's, um, that's very true. So you talked a bit about how you developed your own leadership skills by networking, kind of getting to know people. Do you have any tips for new OTs or just people, OTs in general, that want to start doing that, but maybe you're a little bit timid into doing that? Do you have any techniques or strategies? I think it's really just encouraging yourself uh, to, to kind of get out of your, your comfort zone. And I think just taking some risks sometimes is important. I know that's easier said than done, but for me, it's hard for me to explain things otherwise. One of my former managers sort of pointed out to me that I tend to go towards, and I think I mentioned this earlier, things that aren't the status quo. You know, I went up to Northern Ontario for school. I went to Nunavut to practice, you know, in roles that didn't have sort of predefined occupational therapy roles. I worked in a, in a jail. Um, and so I think for me, it's sort of my natural go-to to just sort of seek out different opportunities. And um, so that may not be everyone's sort of natural tendency, but I would just encourage you if it's not, just to try to push yourself out of your comfort zone. I don't think you have anything to lose really by connecting with people. And one of the things that I've found literally since the day I started OT school about this profession and why I love it so much, occupational therapists love to help and support one another. You know, I know there's other professions that maybe don't have, unfortunately, that same 
sort of collegial relationship um, all the time. There's sort of the, you know, stereotypes of certain professions kind of eat their young. I've never felt that way. When I was starting out as an occupational therapist in my very first job in Northern Ontario, I was terrified because it's not like you don't work on a stroke unit or you don't work uh, in orthopedic rehab. You literally see people with uh, brain injuries, somebody who has cancer, someone who just had a hip replacement, someone with dementia, uh, someone with schizophrenia. You have um, you know, clients who have a whole host of uh, different needs. Um, and I was overwhelmed because as a new grad, I was like, I don't know anything. And I reached out to a bunch of occupational therapists in Northern Ontario who didn't know who I was. And they were all absolutely amazing and incredible about providing support, giving me their phone numbers, saying, call me whenever you want. So I think just don't be afraid to reach out, especially if you want to start within the profession. And then OTs in the profession can connect you with people outside of the profession if that's who you're maybe needing to connect with for what you're interested in. So yeah, I would say just don't be afraid. We're a really friendly and welcoming uh, profession. I, a lot of people sometimes say, and I know that we have different you know, uh, things going on in our personal lives that they don't have time um, you know, for volunteering or things like that. And I, I wrote a board talk actually about this and it's thinking about what volunteering can do for you. And so if you're not someone who feels bold enough to just send an email to someone and ask them for support, joining a committee where you get to know somebody over time in a group of people can also be a way if you're a little bit more timid um, of building those connections where it's not necessarily one-on-one -on -one to start with. You have a group that's kind of learning together and, and building relationships together. Um, and so where it's possible, I think joining committees, even if it's just within your own organization, is a, is a really great way um, to kind of uh, branch out a little bit. When you started your career contacting people, just trying to learn a little bit more about the people that are a little bit farther along than you, what was your approach in contacting them? What was your kind of strategy to get that? Why did you pick the people that you picked? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, in terms of my, I guess, sort of strategy, it was different for different people. So uh, one of the people that I had connected with was a senior leader in interprofessional practice uh, at the hospital that I was working at at the time. And uh, I had been uh, fortunate enough to um, have an OT kind of clinical lead who was connected to her. So I just connected to my clinical lead and asked her to connect me with that person. Um, and that was, uh, I think I might have done it through email at the time, but I already had sort of a relationship with that person. So it wasn't an email that was going to get, you know, lost in the mix. I think that's something to think about too when you're deciding whether to email or call somebody. Um, and in the, the other case, too, of one of the leaders, it was my former director who had connected me uh, with that person. So it was an email introduction that then allowed me to connect with that person. And then because the person was in the same city, then I went to her office uh, to meet with her. And, and also, I think that's valuable where you're able to do that um, because it helps you see a little bit of like the environment or context within which uh, they're kind of working. And the way I chose um, the people was really thinking about what was I interested in, um, you know, down the line in terms of a career and learning more about. One thing that one of my managers um, actually had me do, which was one of the best things ever, I think, was she said to me, um, think about a job that you might want in five years, like, and look, start looking for those. Not that you're going to apply, but look for job descriptions and, and different areas and look at, you know, what skill sets it says that you need, um, like what about it appeals to you and bring those to me. And we'll kind of talk through like what, you know, how we can get you involved in different projects that will help you build that skill set or connect you with people that, 
um, might have uh, a similar role that you could ask more questions to. And that actually, when I started looking at job descriptions, it was really education roles that I was noticing, not so much like clinical management roles, for example, when I was thinking about, you know, if I wanted to try out some sort of bigger L leadership um, positions and, and into professional education specifically, because as an OT, I've always been a huge advocate of the role. I'm never that person when someone says like, oh, the physiotherapist came to see me and then I just kind of nod my head and keep going. I've always been the one to say like, oh, actually, I'm an occupational therapist. And, and again, even in my role as an educator, I always introduce myself first as an occupational therapist. I'm still a you know, licensed OT. That's always my primary identity. And so I think really I see the value of really successful interprofessional teams I've been on really successful interprofessional teams so um, that's really appealed to me and so the two people that I reached out to were people who were in senior leadership roles in interprofessional education so it was just sort of doing a little bit of my own kind of career exploration to lead me to who might be the right people to talk to. Going back to the example that you gave about introducing yourself as an occupational therapist first and foremost how do you define your role in your yourself as an OT to your clients? What's your elevator pitch? So I'm not working clinically anymore. Um, so I'm not sure that I ever really had an elevator pitch. I think for me, I don't find it that helpful to give generic descriptions of occupational therapy. What I always found valuable was helping the client to see, based on what they had shared with me, they uh, you know, their goals were, was helping them sort of see how my role might support them in doing that. And I found that that was always more valuable or resonated with the clients that I worked with. And I think that's very similar even in the work that I do as an educator is why does me being an occupational therapist matter in clinical education? Well, I have the clinical, you know, experience uh, that the people we are teaching or educating do. And so I can understand some of the world in which they're operating from. So for me, I think it's always about connecting the work you do to the specific person you're, you're kind of connecting with. And actually, um, Danny Nashman um, did a talk at the OSOC conference last year, I believe it was, and he really said a lot that was really pivotal in shifting my thinking. And, you know, he was helping the group of us that were there to see that a lot of times we sort of just say, this is what occupational therapy is very broadly and it's in some ways what we end up conveying is more about what we bring as opposed to what we can do for you or with you that you're already doing and and even before I heard Danny Nashman speak actually there's um, a group in Manitoba who were working in provincial corrections who had put a position paper together advocating for occupational therapy uh, in corrections. And there was a group of us in um, Ontario who wanted to do something really similar. And what we noticed about what they did is instead of saying, here's what OT can do for you, they looked at what are their strategic priorities and where does OT fit in supporting those. So it's not about us, it's about them and what their goals are and how we can enable that or support that. Um, and so I think that that's um, something that I've tried to kind of keep with me and I think it's really a good uh, has been really good advice so I don't have an elevator pitch I guess is my long-winded answer <laughs> I, I try to just connect what I'm doing to whoever I'm working with whether it's a client or like a colleague in an education perspective focused a lot about your leadership experience and the skills that you've kind of developed over time is there a particular leadership skill you've had to develop over time that right when you were out of school you kind of identified that mm, there's something I should be working on and what is that and how did you kind of overcome that? I don't know if I recognized it when I was a new grad or just coming out of school, but 
I think one of the things that's kind of inherent in my sort of personality and working style, because I naturally like to um, take initiative and um, be really immersed in projects when I did move into a sort of bigger L leadership role was really learning how to let go and step back and how to really empower other people to take on um, different roles and work. Um, and that was, I think, something that I'm still working on. I think I um, have a tendency to want to jump in and not from the perspective of wanting to take over, but just wanting to be a part of the sort of doing on the ground work, I think. And and I, as I've mentioned earlier, I've been so lucky with the leaders that I have as role models. And I think it's probably the number one most important skill to have as a leader is just to think about how you can best support and enable other people uh, to be successful in their roles and develop uh, new skills. The other thing that I didn't mention earlier um, about leadership qualities is another really important thing is just creating space for psychological safety, like creating that space. And I think this is so true that in terms of like from a direct service perspective, as a team member, you can create a space where um, people feel safe to say when they've made a mistake or to say when they don't know. And as a colleague, if you can try to create that culture, I think that's hugely important. And to me, that is really important leadership. I think, Marnie, you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes there's leaders that are in those big L leadership roles that sometimes aren't the best um, leaders in the sense that they don't create a space for people to feel safe to have discussions that often move things forward. Um, and so I think that that's just another piece that I didn't mention earlier that I think is, is really important is, is being able to create psychological safety, whether it's just in a team uh, or even with your clients so that they feel like they can let you know if a piece of equipment you recommended is not actually something they think that will work for them or they don't feel safe or ready to go home uh, yet or some of the supports that are in place that maybe a family member has recommended they don't agree with. And so I think in, in any sort of space, just creating a place for open dialogue is hugely important. I'm going to play a little bit of a hypothetical. If you saw your current self, let's say 15 years ago, would they have been surprised to see where you are now in your career? I think maybe in the sense that I don't think I ever thought of myself going into education, despite the fact that I played a lot of school as a kid. It was never something that I really, you know, considered as a as a career. Um, so maybe in in that sense, but I think from a very young age, and this is partly just by good fortune of the parents that I uh, that I you know um, have that I was always encouraged to just seek out new opportunities and that doesn't necessarily mean going to the Arctic it just again joining a club or an activity um, that allows you to get exposure to new things and and essentially you know learn new information um, that uh, I guess the multiple roles that I've had in the different practice settings um, and geographical locations doesn't really surprise me too much. I think the one thing, though, that I would maybe say is it's really tricky when you're starting out, I think, in any career. I don't think it's just occupational therapy because you always feel like you need to have more experience to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and I think you do need a certain level of experience for certain you know, roles and things. Um, but I'll just give the example of the board of directors. Uh, when I was tapped on the shoulder to kind of put my name forward uh, and consider it, it was not even anywhere in my radar thinking about joining the board. You know, I had only been practicing for a few years. And, you know, when I thought of board of directors, I always thought these super senior people who, again, were in those sort of corner offices, had been practicing for 30 years. And I, you know, kind of just kept thinking like, 
what do I really have to bring or have to offer? And it was only through kind of encouragement from other people that I realized that I did have something to offer because our membership base and for OSOT is not all people who have been working for 30 years. And so what I could offer was the perspective of somebody who was newer into their careers, younger generation, and could be a voice kind of to connect sort of those people. So I think I'd be surprised in some of the roles I've been in because I haven't always had the confidence to feel like I necessarily, you know, had something to offer. And it really is because of leaders that I've had or that I've been in contact with who have encouraged me is the only reason in many ways, I think, why I've, you know, um, again, had some of these opportunities. Um, I've been very lucky to have just really positive people around me who have encouraged me to try new things and push myself kind of beyond um, what I thought I was capable of. What would you tell yourself uh, or your future self, say 15 years down the road, would be the most important thing that they would know or should know? I think, to be honest, something... Um, that is not just true in my career life, but in my personal life that I've really learned a lot over the last few years is being content doesn't mean being complacent. So I've been in roles where I have been really happy, still learning, hugely engaged, and for whatever reason, felt this pressure to, again, strive for something different or something more. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's the path you want. But I think that if you're happy in the work that you're doing and you feel like you're, you know, um, doing something that's meaningful, then that's the mo most important thing. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. You spend so much of your time, you know, in your work, and I think it's important to be really happy. The other thing I think is that I really grappled with moving out of a clinical role into a non-clinical role. That's been a huge struggle in terms of my identity as an OT. Am I a fraud as an OT because I'm not seeing clients anymore? You know, that's sort of the questions that go through your mind. And, and I think that just because you went to school for one thing and you end up doing something that's a little bit different than what you were kind of taught in your day-to-day -day in school, that doesn't mean that the skills don't translate or you know, I, I, you know, very much think that my background as an OT and the clinical work I do um, are really helping me in the role I'm in as an educator now. So I think it's also just to remember that, you know, it's a journey and you don't have to do one thing and then move into something, move into whatever the, the linear path of that sort of education or role is and continue on that way. So I think that's another uh, sort of important thing too, that it's, I think, the training and skill development and experience that you have as an OT in school and in practice uh, can be a really great springboard for other other things. And it it's a it's a, just a different identity as an OT. It's not a non-identity. And I think that's going to be important for me as I continue to move my career forward if I continue to stay in a non-clinical role. Many OTs, when they progress through their career, have that identity of, I am an OT first and foremost, no matter what role they play. And when you get to the point that you are retiring, that's a huge or difficult step to have to you know, give up that title. Um, you know, the college requires that you have to be current and have currency hours to be able to call yourself an occupational therapist. But there are many occupational therapists who drop their titles for whatever reason and continue on as educated in occupational therapy, mm -hmm. but not occupational therapists. So in that sense, is there something that you would want to say to those individuals who maybe have the training of an occupational therapist, but don't call themselves as occupational therapists? 
Um, I think it's hard for me to have anything to say to those individuals because I am not in that camp yet. Um, those are actually people I've started to talk to because I myself have even been wondering, do I want to continue to maintain uh, the license when I'm not doing clinical work anymore? Or do I want to, as you kind of mentioned, Marnie, kind of know that I have that training and background and, and you know, not necessarily, you know, maintain the title. For me personally, I'm not ready to give it up yet because I don't know if I'm ready to fully give up clinical work. I, you know, it may be something that I go back to, but uh, I think it's just an individual choice, you know, for everyone. And some of the people who no longer use the title might still carry that identity and others may not and may not for reasons because they've taken on another identity. So yeah, I think it's just, I, I don't think it's something that I can really answer not sort of um, being in that position, I guess. But I think it's something that, you know, I've had a few friends who have, who have decided not to renew their license, so have, you know, don't go by the title of occupational therapist anymore. And for some, it was a really easy decision because they took a totally different career path. And I think for others, it was more difficult because they're still sort of in the same kind of healthcare world, but in a role maybe where, again, they're not doing clinical work. So I think it's a, it's not... Um, an easy thing in I think any profession because again your profession just be for a lot of people not everyone but a lot of people really does become uh, their identity which is I think why um, some of the new literature that's that's coming out about sort of late career I've seen there's more stuff with late career physicians it's interesting just to hear the reflections that people have when you've had a career for so long in a you know in a certain profession and for me I haven't necessarily had a career for so long but that's what I you know thought I was going to be or what you know that's what I was going to do is be an OT. From my own experience I've been non-clinical for more than 10 years so for me I still identify wholeheartedly as an occupational therapist and probably will until I run out of currency or I, I retire. Yeah. It's just such a part of us and it's hard to separate the what did you learn through your educational process of becoming an occupational therapist and what you've learned as a practicing occupational therapist, and you can't really weed them out. Absolutely. You learn task analysis and project management, even if it's at a client, like a client level. Uh, you learn all kinds of different skills that you use throughout your career in many different areas. So I think, you know, my advocacy would be get your name out as an occupational therapist, even in areas that are um, less linked to that clinical patient-client relationship um, because it looks great for the profession and you bring so many um, well-respected skills as a OT to these other areas as well. Absolutely, and I, I think that's a really good point that you that you make around for the profession. It's really important, um, especially when I was working in simulation. One of the things that was frustrating for me is I went to um, this sort of forum that was for sort of simulation kind of in the GTA kind of area. And I left feeling really disheartened because there were very few women and mostly physicians who were in kind of the leadership roles in simulation. And I was feeling like I don't see myself or I don't see, and I mean, Lots of people go through that. They don't see what they're, you know, themselves represented in a, in a, you know, group. And in order to have people in those groups, we need people to identify, you know, as part of groups and be in, in those positions. So I think to your point, it's important if you're a manager, a director, you know, to identify your OT 
title and that it also helps to show that OTs can be in those kinds of roles. Um, so you're right, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely important, I think. And I think you're right that, you know, one of the things that was so amazing to see as I was leaving one of the hospitals that I was working at was how many OTs had moved into leadership, big L leadership positions. And I know we've talked a lot about you don't have to be in one of those positions, um, you know, to be a leader. And I, I fully agree with that. However, historically, sometimes it was felt that we weren't given the same opportunities that other disciplines were for those roles for people who wanted to move into them. So it was really amazing to see all these OTs move into those roles because it really demonstrates a shift in people's perspective and that here are OTs who have the skill set to be able to to um, be really successful in these roles. Um, so yeah, I think I think you're right. It is important to to um, for the profession for sure. My final question is something we ask all of our guest speakers: Is there a leader in your life that's inspired you? It can be in occupational therapy or beyond. You know, that's a really a, a good question. I think there's been a lot of people, but I I think. You know, interestingly, and this has been probably because of my kind of reflection over the last few months in different roles that I've had, I would say in many ways my parents, because they were in very different roles. My dad was a partner in an accounting firm, so he was your big L leader, and my mom was a teacher. And while she did some administrative work for the majority of her career, she stayed in the sort of direct service level and, and taught. And, you know, I think growing up a lot of the time, we would think of my dad as like someone who was in a leadership role and not always my mom because she continued to teach. And I had an experience um, not that long ago where uh, I actually had an opportunity to meet um, someone who my mom had tutored. It was actually a friend of, of my sister's. And he said, your mom changed my life. If she hadn't tutored me, I probably never would have finished high school and gone on to you know school and, and uh, school after that and, and had a career. And it really shifted my thinking, I think, about leadership. And even when I moved into a manager role and felt like that that was, you know, the role where I had to, you know, uh, lead from. Uh, I think it caused reflection on actually all the leadership I had done in some of the um, more direct service roles that I was in, and actually that's what I really loved doing. Um, and so I think that they've sort of been the influence in sort of combination with the experiences I've had in reflection because it's reminded me that, again, this idea that you really can lead uh, from any level. Great. Thanks, Laura, for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. I hope that something that I've shared will hopefully uh, resonate for people and, and will be valuable for, for people um, that are listening. Thanks for listening to Leadership in Motion. Laura gave some great advice for occupational therapists wanting to get more involved at any stage of their leadership journey. Don't forget to subscribe to Leadership in Motion and leave a review. Make sure to follow OSOT on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to stay in the know about all things OT in Ontario. Links will be included in the description. Check out the episode description where you will find links to Laura's board talk, the position paper promoting occupational therapy in Manitoba's correctional system, and the episode of OSOT's new OTs on the Block podcast that Marnie mentioned during our conversation with Laura. If you have any emerging or established leaders in occupational therapy you want as a guest for a future episode, email us at osot@osot.on.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.